Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Meta Ideological Politics Podcast. Today, we're joined by Brent Cooper. Brent is an indispensable voice in the liminal scene, a meta-modern muckraker who uniquely takes seriously a few decisive things. One, that we actually want to get somewhere. Two, that this somewhere is both well-defined and well-rooted in long lineages of philosophical inquiry. And three, that the getting there will take a huge amount of old-school agency, planning, and critical distinction-making, rather than just pluralism and stylistic nuance worship as some sort of bubble-up emergent engine of change. Brent believes in solidarity of purpose. He's unabashedly a man of the left, and so is unabashedly a man of position-taking, even as he tries to uphold the metamodern imperative of modal superposition. The difference is that Brent urges us urges us to make moves. His abstract organization is an unapologetically political project with well-defined policy goals. Like Salsa, Brent's moves are in 3-4 time, spotlighted in their constructed agential quality. This is all to say that Brent is perhaps one of the most purely rigorously post-postmodern metamodernists, a radical oddball who refuses to slip easily back into regular unsyncopated time. His scholarly works on the history of metamodernism, particularly his Missing Metamodern series, highlighting early theorists Moyo Okadiji, Albert Borgman, and Justo Gonzalez, are important and underrated. They were also my introduction to the liminal scene proper, so I have to thank you for writing me, Brent. And of course, we thank you for being here to chat with us. Thank you. <clears throat> I appreciate such uh, generous words. And of course, I could I could take myself down at the same time. And I think that's part of uh, being metamodern and humble and self-effacing. But we'll save that for another time. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to jump in um, to what I think is a, a an underrepresented or appreciated stream in your thought, which is we could maybe call it the theological element. And I, I think a lot of people who read your work superficially might assume that you have a sort of ontology that is rather flat and uh, atheistic, but it's, it's not. Mm -hmm. uh, you have a real appreciation for depth and for mystery, and you, you call yourself uh, a mystic by nature. And I want to read a quote um, from the piece on Gonzalez, and it's you quoting Gonzalez, and Gonzalez is quoting David Tracy. And the quote is, to the degree that post-modernity is the rediscovery of the radical, irreducible otherness of the other. It can be argued that postmodernity may lead the path away from religion as a general abstraction and back toward a theology that takes seriously the otherness of revelation and recovers the prophetic core of the Judeo-Christian tradition. And you also write about metanoia. You've just published a piece recently about metanoia, and you locate that concept in the Gospels. So I, I'm just wondering, what... what is your theological orientation what what do you think the role for theology per se is in your form of metamodernism yeah thanks that's a great set of questions um and you know i yeah i do have that mystic spiritual side and it's a big part of the abstract film uh, but that's also a satire and i like to satirize and parody these things because um, there's limits to you know, the metaphysics that we believe in, you know, if you believe in angels or whatever, it's like at the end of the day, those are social constructs and there's a, a finite material reality to our lives. Right. And, th and that can inform our spirituality instead of it just being an atheistic kind of, kind of driver. Um, <clears throat> so 
Uh, yeah, you know, there's there's many touch points, you know, with, with Gonzalez and also Borgman and others, like they talk about liberation theology. I think that's a core part of left uh, discourse and, and praxis. Um, and, you know, the insofar as there's any authentic tradition of any given religion, such as Christianity, it's always contested, right? And I, if we're going to you know, I, I said I said in a comment reply to somebody the other day, the other day on that piece because they really liked the piece and they were saying, you know, they said at one point their their relationship with Jesus. Right. And they, they were, you know, in a forward thinking way. But in part of my reply, like uh, I said, like the extent of my relationship with Jesus is as an imaginary friend <laughs> and like we can we can historicize him and you know, speculate and, and, and uh, debunk and talk about the, the myth of Jesus. At the end of the day, though, you can't physically meet him, but you can, you can try to be a Christ. And so I think that's the destiny of all religions. Um, and and in, in that comment as well, I said, you, you know, if I didn't make it clear enough in my Metanoia article that uh, we live in a post-secular age, Meaning we've gone through the secular enlightenment and kind of religion as religion and th theology and spirituality have come back for better or worse. Right. But but that doesn't mean we can just lap, lapse back in to calling ourselves Christians or Buddhists or whatever. So I said in, 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 in that reply, you know, I I appreciate world religions. I appreciate parody religions, whether it's like flattened spaghetti monster or a fictional religion like Jedi and I appreciate civil religion, which is, um, you know, like Ryan on, on your podcast with Jeremy the other day, you mentioned bowling alone, right? That's a classic bestseller in sociology about community and to some extent, uh, civil religion. I think, uh, um, it's, it's Putnam, right? Who wrote that, but it, Robert Bella wrote about civil religion, right? And then, so that's like sports, nationalism, all the other things that fulfill a religious function, right? So we shouldn't limit ourselves to religions per se. Um, and then, yeah, through, through my own kind of storytelling and, you know, life to some extent, I try to just follow the radical political spiritual path, right? Like if we're going to look up to Martin Luther King or, or Gandhi or whoever, and, and, you know, and, and to various extents problematize them too. Like Gandhi has a, a, a problematic legacy uh, and, and reputation to different extents. But uh, like I say in the Metanoia piece, like he can, he can be a dialogue partner. So, um, you know, one, one, I probably could just keep going down this thread, but one, one final point to kind of tie things together, like Alexander Bard's Cynthiaism, right? Although he is a reactionary in my view, and I, and I challenge him on that. His idea of Cynthiaism, I think, is a pretty cogent philosophical discourse of, of meta-theology. Meta you know, it's a kind of meta-modern approach. It's to say, look, we can, we can actually sort of triangulate atheism, theism, entheism, pantheism, uh, and, and this idea of a syn synthios, kind of the internet, you know, because these are, these are new things. The internet is new and, and novel. Um, and, and Burning Man, of course, for better or worse, as a kind of synthetic religious practice. Oh, Ryan, you've turned into a woman, <laughs> into, into Rachel. 
<laughs> briefly you there. Bet. Um, <laughs> right. So, I mean, so this, you know, these things too, this is where I would challenge the, the, the typical, um, discourses around spirituality, whether, whether it's coming from pockets of the liminal web, uh, or, di you know, different new age and conspiratorial groups, uh, and, and even, even Verveke and, and, and his, his, his friend, Jordan Peterson, <laughs> the way they talk about it, right? It's like, sh there's a lot of intellectual depth. But there's no, there's no pragmatic application. Like, like, um, you know, I've, I've, I've pissed people off by calling Jordan Peterson a sociopath and I can defend that. What I mean by that is that when it comes to leftists and, 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 you know, people of different spiritual stripes or people that disagree with them, he doesn't recognize their humanity. He doesn't listen to them, and that's sociopathic behavior, right? I'll leave it to the doctors to diagnose Peterson with with psychopathy, right? If like Gabor Mate wants to uh, psychoanalyze him, which he does, but when it comes to the socio, I think a lot of people are low key sociopathic because they're just detached from from an applied concern for for the other, which which you mentioned in that quote. Yeah, that that's that's what I loved about the quote specifically, and why I, rem I remember it two years or almost three years after reading it in your piece, it, uh, the radical otherness of the other as a gateway into what was originally the core, the core of, of the prophecy in, in Judeo Christian religion, but then all, and, you know also other religions too. I think Jordan mm -hmm. Peterson's probably mm -hmm. he takes the archetypes of Judeo Christianity and and reifies them too much. Whereas in, on the mm -hmm. other side, in, in the liminal web, what we see a, a lot of the time is it's just taking the symbologyism of different religions and, and sort of just playing with them. Um, I hesitate to bring it up, but uh, Jonathan Rousen the other day, mm -hmm. Ryan, you told me this, he, he, he tweeted um, that he had put the, the ashes on his forehead for Ash Wednesday. He says, I'm not quite Christian, but I appreciate the symbology of this, so I've done it to myself. Mm -hmm. And And that struck me as interesting i don't know if i find it problematic per se i am christian i i i, I did it too um, mm -hmm. okay yeah but... I mean, yeah that's interesting like i think you know some people will want to be uh, either either playful or more habitual with their ritual participation um i think definitely we go through phases in our life where we where we commit to that commit to a particular discipline or or holiday if you will, as a, as a social practice, I kind of come in and out of it, you know, like I wasn't even aware of Ash Wednesday, um, passing, um, you know, so, so I, I, I'm, I'm rather detached in that sense. Right. And there's, there's always too many things going on, but, but again, I, I appreciate the world religions more. And, and I just wanted to, to, to make a point about uh, Gonzalez and that piece before we move on. Like, like it's such a powerful catchphrase, whether it was the, the subtitle or well, it was the title of the chapter, I think. But metamodern aliens in postmodern Jerusalem, right? The whole, the whole thesis of his piece was speaking to kind of Hispanic people in America and the, the in-betweenness and the plight that they face vis-a-vis uh, -vis the black struggle and indigenous struggle and and this uh, this this you know various um, 
like uh, different status that, that they hold and you know a aoc is really a, a popular figurehead of of this sort of thing too especially as she's constantly under attack like it was just a week or two ago tucker carlson was calling her a, a rich white lady you know he was like aggressively er erasing her identity in order to to sort of si silence and dismiss what she was saying right and and to uh, to various extents the united states has always had a kind of theocratic element right it's very pronounced with bush for example and, and the different influence different evangelical movements have and that are incredibly dangerous, right? Like they don't, they, there's no, there's no kind of spirit of Jesus making it through to the policy level to actually rectify the systemic inequalities and ongoing crises. It's just the opposite kind of oppressive ignorance, uh, forbidding education, right? And in that very um, sort of, classical religious sense if you will like we're going to control what you think and that's going to be best for the social order my favorite mystics in the christian tradition foremost of which is meister eckhart uh and also uh margaret porrette i don't, I don't know if that's how it's pronounced but spelled like that they, they emphasize that the the idea is to move through this drunken sort of ecstasy of the union with god and to move toward the sober higher sort of mysticism which is involves a, a, an egolessness and to, to scooch over and be the vessel which I, you know that's my that's my favorite part of like the mass when we talk about moving over moving over and being the vessel while still retaining some kind of agency as i said and that is that's the in-betweenness of metamodernism is it, how exactly are we going to retain this agency like rousen i think is trying to do to say i'm constructing the meaning here myself i don't need a church to help me do it which i think is valid in some sense um but how to tell when you're when you're the ego is coming in too much what are, what are your mm. thoughts on that because it's, it's a it's a genuine question that i that i wrestle with um sorry is your question to do with kind of like our our need and positioning Recording stopped our need and positioning with respect to uh, organized religion, institutionalized religion versus individual Let's say inst institutions in general, mm -hmm. maybe not religious, but political or otherwise versus agency, creativity, play confidence. I think confidence is part of it. Yeah. I think one, one way I want to answer your question is like you, you, you said you're a Christian, right? And so I, you know, I admire, I admire when I meet sort of, let, let's call them Christian mystics, right? People who are, and like Ryan, you know, calls himself a normie in, insofar as he wants to remain as engaged as possible at the, at the community level with all, all stripes of people. And, and that's, that's a very authentic um, spiritual slash religious practice too. And so I admire, I admire what, what you're doing because like for myself, let's say I'm I'm doing the same as you and I go to a church and I identify as a Christian. There's a part of me that gets a, a little bit afraid and paranoid about all the people around me that might be taking it in, in a dogmatic way. And that's especially true with like mega churches, right? That's right. like, that's much more far removed from, right? So I would feel um, more comfortable in a black church, right? With that, that tradition 
which again is the, the liberation theology, right? As opposed to white Christian evangelical tradition, right? So, so I admire people that um, try to stay, stay in it uh, as a, as a social practice. Um, but, um, but yeah, that doesn't change the fact that, um, it, you know, we, it, it there's there's a, a slippery slope how we get roped into these institutions because there is a power hierarchy, uh, you know, um, with all of these things, and so they don't want to be critiqued. The Catholic Church doesn't want to be critiqued. Like, sure, it can, you know, like a like a state or a religion, they can they can occasionally get a more progressive leader, a more or less progressive person, and then that can kind of sway things, but. By and large, right, look at what the Catholic Church did with the cover-ups of all the child abuse and stuff. There's too much self-preservation as the top priority in all institutions, right? All. Like New York Times, um, you know, WTO, IMF, UN, <laughs> uh, whatever it is. And I'm against that in principle, right? And that's why within the context of like an abstract organization, I want to be able to be fluid as an institution and autocritical, right? And that doesn't mean I'm just drifting from worldview to worldview. It means that um, you're trying to embrace the paradox, right? And this is why I say, uh, like I said to this person in a comment, like, like, and I said in my article, like I'm using all this, uh, these Christian points of reference, but I think, I think ultimately a, a sort of final metanoia, if you will, you know, we can talk about it in sort of eschatological term, es eschatological terms, like uh, the end times and, you know, Christian revelation, but also like, you know, we got to go beyond, come back to the secular, go, go beyond that into the post-secular. Um, and um, recognize that, um, you know, nominally, semantically, words like Christian, Muslim, Jew, etc., they, they will, Buddhist, they will continue to be relevant. But as points of reference for learning and taking in a more er, global perspective, as opposed to, oh, I'm going to just carry on this tradition. Like, you, you see the paradox, right? Even in the most noble form of carrying on that uh, Christian or Muslim community, there's still a kind of uh, boundary, you know, or, or um, yeah, between, between you and that person. And the only way to transcend it, and it's shouldn't be that difficult, but to, um, uh, you know, just to find common ground in, in humanity, in, uh, like I said, civil religion, parody religion, um, uh, you know, which, uh, or synthetic that, that, uh, you know, interfaith, uh, syn syncretic also is a good term to apply to religion. It's, it's not synthesis, but it's the, the kind of com combination and integration of things. Uh, I just think that's, that's better. And, and so at some point we have to, um, distance ourselves from, the, from those labels, right? They can, they can continue to be useful and invoked as per the situation like Martin Luther King's a good example too because he used that language of of religion and uh, you know and 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 god and and whatnot and that was binding you know he didn't really do it in like partisan terms 
rather it was like ecumenical. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't even defining it, but that's the word I was looking for. Yeah, ec ecumenical, right? So yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that's where these discussions have to go for me, right? And so that's why like with the metanoia piece, like I was like very happy to kind of like, you know, embody and sink myself into the Christian perspective and the Christian literature uh, and it's a it's a novel heterodox part of of the Christian literature to be sure, right? Um, but to to revive that because it has been a tradition that's been suppressed, right? right? And so, like, if we talk about the transcendentalists too in in America, um, or the Quakers, you know, I think those are those are you know they're called free thinkers, and those are good examples of of early fusions of this um, kind of. Yeah, new new spiritual wave you know transcending religion uh, so that's that's where i'm at you know and and then we all have to come back to that um mystical truth gnostic truth as it were um which is is beyond language too right and there's there's different ways to get there whether it's through meditation or or psychedelics and there's mild psychedelics like cannabis and strong psychedelics like mushrooms and and then there's a whole discourse about um which which I, again i touch upon in the article about psychedelics and philosophy and religion and uh, christian christianity and mushrooms to various uh, extents so um yeah insofar as we're trying to you know break everybody free of the matrix but not not you know cut out their scaffolding at, at the same time um, we, we need to, ha we need to have this, um, this, uh, this solidarity and this understanding across labels. Right. So like, I love that, that you came to metamodernism and stuff through, through my work. And then like, I have tons to, to learn from you in, in reverse. Right. And to learn about myself through that engagement. So I don't, you know, I'm trying to be an authority because I see so much bullshit being spun in, in the different discourses. But but that's not that's not to kind of construct a construct a hierarchy uh, over over other people. Yeah, the idea is to live in the paradox to some extent, or to appreciate the possibility of living in the paradox. And you've said elsewhere that it's it, the idea is neither orthodoxy, which of course we don't like. You and I both don't like orthodoxy mm -hmm. in that. But on the other hand, it's not mere heterodoxy either. You can't just throw them all into a bowl and <laughs> pick and choose. It's the paradox, which is, as you say, it's a, it's um, it's enigmatic. It's hard mm -hmm. to talk about. Mm -hmm. and it's hard to know mm -hmm. if you're doing it right when you're doing it. Maybe you feel in a resonant way if you're doing it right, but resonance is easily mistakable with um, the thrill of orthodoxy, thrill the ecstasy of mm -hmm. of, of ideology. And, and so, you know, of course, I'm, I'm, I just want to ask you, but you probably don't know either. How do you tell the difference? Or well, is it, is it a, an article of faith or, or what is it? It's interesting. I mean, this is this will be kind of a crude answer. But, you know, I was I was dragged to church at, at various times when I was like six years old. Right. And and even then it's like, oh, the, the Lord this and the Lord that. And I was like, I, I was not at all inspired by that kind of rhetoric. I was like, what are you talking about? Right? Like this is the language the, the Bible is translated to is still kind of um, 
ancient by contemporary standards, right? And and it doesn't have any real reference points, right? So the Lord this and the Lord that, and he saith and becometh and like, what? <laughs> so I was bewildered that other people were getting roped into this, right? And yeah. it, it took me a while to so understand. I, let, me, let me say, yeah. I was roped in. When I was a kid, I loved it. I was the oh, most okay. pious little kid. Mm-hmm. I went to Bible mm-hmm. school. And mm-hmm. then when I was a teenager, I moved in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Hard atheism mm-hmm. and the new atheist, okay. the four horse. I was all about that. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. kind of in college, I started reading more nuanced people who brought me back. So I moved exactly. right through exactly. what you described and what Gonzalez described. Of mm-hmm. Coming up against the, the alienation and, and figuring out, well, this isn't going to work. So yeah. what? Mm-hmm. And then... It's not exactly to reach back because I didn't reach back toward mm-hmm. the pious before. Mm-hmm. It's moving through. So it's interesting that that your temperament is is not that at all. Your your instinct is to recoil away, whereas my instinct is actually to to move in. It it was to recoil, but at the same time, that didn't stop me as a teenager from while well, also being skeptical. You know trying to study mysticism and trying to, you know, watching zeitgeist movies and, and thinking about Jesus that way. Um, it's interesting. You use the word uh, pious too. like uh, a decade ago during the Occupy movement. I wrote a short little article, um, uh, you know, not, not to say it was great or anything, but I was trying to do a little nuanced commentary on the thing. And, and I coined this word occupiety because occupy was all about occupation right um and and i've i looked around and obviously i was on the occupy side the rebellion the rebellion side and i looked at all the i was in london i looked at all these police and they just looked like stormtroopers like like soulless like fascist like it was scary right and i recognized you know the nuance there that they're just you know people doing jobs and that sucks and that there's a police state and most of them have no idea how kind of just just job seeking and following orders trickles down into those types of patterns and then gets them to do fascist things like like kettling was like the official policy like let's round up these protesters and make them scared and make them hostile and you know and put them in prison right and so i knew that the movement would fail regardless Mm. that's not to say it was in the in the wrong like i do think the occupy movement stated clear goals to various extents and then the the media would be like oh who knows what they want they're so disorganized they're they're not being lucid but the the term occupiety you know is an early metamodern kind of portmanteau kind of trying to theorize the the fusion of that and in terms of spiritual practice in terms of behavior right how we win by being more righteous and more pious than them who are assuming piety who are assuming authority because they have guns and billy clubs um so yeah and i was trying to touch on a kind of that kind of spirit that was there to an extent and needed to be named i think and and more clearly defined so so it didn't devolve into um to, you know riots and street violence yeah about, about so the, the idea is to embody embody the paradox embody the, the the higher element of the paradox and then maybe inject that into a system in which that behavior is anti-fragile so slowly but surely it wins which i think is probably the ethos of the abstract organization and your mission as opposed to pure activism and, and just 
getting out there and speaking really loudly. There's also this element of living it. Yeah. And I call it abstractivism just because, again, it kind of naturally those words combine. Um, and I said I said to Joe Lightfoot um, just the other day, like with respect to, you know, social justice warriors and stuff and wokeness, the anti wokeness, like I said, I'm not a frontline sort of worker on these things. And that's right. why that's why I'm so passionate about defending frontline people. Right. When 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 social justice warriors. Right. With that term used to have sort of positive if but problematic connotations. And then around 2014, it became a pejorative distinctly. It became weaponized against stu student activists. Right. And so and so I take issue with that because those people need to be defended because they are frontline people, even if their practices are not perfect or if they're annoying people they're in the right you know i'm always like clear about that and because their activism is based on and based in literature that is right you know like whether it's critical race theory or or whatever it may be like that literature is correct and the way you know the universities and academics they're doing the best they can to spread these discourses, to teach, to uh, teach critical thinking, right? Not just pass down this stuff dogmatically. And all these things, like all these subfields, like critical race theory, you know, I noted back in 2012, I, I drew up a list of a bunch of sort of new currents and turns that like, like if we might say neo, neo Hegelianism, um, you know, whatever, whatever that, um, might actually mean but i i come, came up with this list that were that were subfields that were gesturing towards a meta turn and and didn't know how to think of it more broadly and collectively right and so i think that still needs to be consolidated and synthesized and defined uh to say you know here it is yeah welcome back ryan <laughs> Oh, is he back? Yeah, I'm really sorry. Back, um, <clears throat> yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a little better. So continue on. I'll try to piece together what you're saying and uh, jump in if I get a chance. Ryan is having some internet issues. I'm having some computer issues, which is why I'm on my phone. And Brent is holding us all together here. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yes, thank God for Brent. <laughs> yeah, luckily the, the recording's going just fine on my end. Uh, so yeah, we're, we're about half an hour in. Where should we take it next? Well, Ryan, we just finished up talking about religion and a little bit about activism versus uh, being the change and, and standing back away from the front lines, which Brent, that's what Brent does. Brent is the general <laughs> ordering the troops and giving, giving them <laughs> structure and, and frameworks to attack. It's not. Ex I know. I know you're half joking, but it's not. It's not exactly that either. Um, I. Uh, I feel like I'm spiritually on the front lines, you know. Like, like let me put it in stark contrast, right? Like that that article I wrote about Arnav Gupta and self-immolation, right? 2019. He's a guy who lit himself on fire on the White House lawn. That that is some holy transcendent warfare right and obviously he was struggling with with uh various issues right um uh, but it happened we need we just need to recognize that it happened 
Right. And it was barely noted in the media, you know, barely. And it was really strange. Like, even if it was, there was like a press release from the New York Times, like nobody talked about it. And, and so I felt like that guy though, you know, I identified with, with what he was going through with what he did um, to various extents. And so I, I'm trying to, I'm not trying to like lead per se or tell people what to do, but to uh, build solidarity with that. And the flip side of that is like build consensus. We can't just have solidarity and be, you know, kind of blindly all activating in various ways, because we, through the meta crisis, we know that all these causes converge. We need to solve all of them at once. So I'm trying to like, I'm trying to show that, you know, I'll, I'll try to, I'll try to step into a frontline role where possible and where appropriate, but, but where not, because I'm just, you know, on the internet from the middle of nowhere. Um, I, I want to be on the front lines of the internet too, and kind of foregrounding what what the real struggle is, and and building coalitions and tipping points towards uh, just doing the right thing, voting the right way, living the right way, and uh, and that doesn't come from a, a preachy authoritarian place, right? It comes from um, looking at what the the consensus is are about these things, about about permaculture, about degrowth, about about conflict resolution and and peace building and and just leaning into that right and so like you said it at the outset like this is why i try to intervene on liminal liminal web discourse try to call out its its bullshit try to break the the sort of sort of attitude of self-preservation like i said about all institutions and and uh, and and at the same time, like honor and enable people's greatest strengths that that we all have, so we can actually like work together better as a collective intelligence. Do you foresee this scene that we're in, the liminal web, so called? I like to call it a scene because I think it it operates basically just like the punk scene did in the seventies and eighties, or. I, I equate it to music scenes. Um, I don't, you know, I don't think that its structure is actually very unique. It's all scenes are liminal. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, a, that's a good point. Power there that we can that we can tap into, or is it ultimately going to fizzle out, or is it ultimately that we pluck individual voices, individual actors, individual ideas from the scene, or as as I think Peter Lindbergh is all about, and Layman Pascal gave a talk on the story recently about how to harness the liminal web in a convergent way toward something i mean do you foresee all of us together doing this thing or or, or what what in the midterm what do you see going going on yeah i think about this question a lot because i always see these opportunities for for new bifurcations right my you know i i, I lean cynical because I share with people what my hopes and expectations are uh, for the benefit of everybody. And then they keep disappointing those. They keep falling short, right? And layman, somebody I've talked to about this um, at, at pretty good length, right? So, so to some extent, I think he's trying to advance my ideas of convergence and stuff like this. And also the feedback I get is like, yeah, it's happening, but it's not happening as quickly as you want it to, right? 
I do, I do think I said this sort of thing from the beginning, going back to 2016, that we had a real opportunity to like build consensus kind of weigh in more publicly on decisive moments historically, like, like the Bernie election, Jeremy Corbyn stuff, uh, you know, and, and and the pattern of all these liminal spaces, with a few exceptions, right, has been to not really consume any left discourse as part of that so-called balanced diet, right? Like um, so many people, like, yeah, you know, the, the far right heterodox spaces, like, like Quillette and stuff like that, intellectual dark web stuff. There's people who are who are diehard into that, and and many of them are just kind of crypto crypto racist. But then there's a lot of people who are like, well, you know, I'm I just it's part of my balanced diet. I I take in all perspectives, um, and so I'm not committed to this. You know, just on LinkedIn the other day, I got I got into it with a guy who shared a very recent Quillette article, and I looked at the article, and I'm like I'm like this is garbage, <laughs> so so hot garbage. Um, and and then he kind of he kind of like walked back and was like, I appreciate your critique. Like, I kind of want to see both sides of it and I'm not overly committed. But the problem is, like, people don't they don't seem to be aware or they've willfully selected out leftist spaces for 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 discourse. Right. Because and I think there's rational reasons for that right like it, it might be too hyperbolic or it might ring too true but then there, that's too problematic to act on sort of thing um but but um yeah insofar as there's echo chambers you know i think a lot of left spaces cover the right but it doesn't in good faith but it doesn't go the other way so much and so the the whole political spectrum is tilted to the right so a lot of moderate people are getting kind of seduced or roped into right-wing talking points because they have so much good faith or so much epistemic humility they want to hear that position out right <clears throat> but what they don't realize in advance is that position is coded and that the person saying it isn't necessarily uh well thought out or grounded they're just they're also just recapitulating some kind of right-wing talking point that's been coded. So uh, I, I don't know if that answers the question. I kind of drifted off on a tangent uh, on, you did, on but that it's a, one. It's a good... <laughs> let let me I try guess. to uh, jump in, okay. just, just hoping that the internet uh, holds up on my end, because I have my fingers crossed here. But yeah, Brent, I want to just kind of um, echo what you're saying and kind of share how I've been framing in my own mind right and i and you listened to my talk i had with jeremy on this podcast and part of what i was saying right is the the fear of engaging with certain perspectives say left perspectives whether crt marxism mmt right modern monetary theory um and all, a lot of these theories or or ideologies as they're kind of labeled pejoratively um, are dismissed or not looked into with any sufficient level of nuance or complexity or with the intention of extracting insights that can be integrated into a bigger picture. Yeah. So part of mm -hmm. meta-ideological politics is what should be our starting point or starting attitude towards mm -hmm. exploring a wide range of different frameworks or analytic yeah. schools of thoughts and so forth so that we can really truly have mm -hmm. a 
a balanced perspective and not skew in one direction without any awareness that we're skewing in that direction. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and so part of that, to me, overcoming that fear is from the standpoint of like political or civic education, right? It's like thinking non-exclusively about these frameworks. So it's not this fear of like, oh, if I read uh, CRT or whatever, that's going to completely supplant everything I believe. But rather it's no, it's a certain set of insights and heuristics and perspectives that will enrich your understanding of complex reality in a specific way that we should probably consider. And that mm -hmm. lowers people's uh, initial resistance or, or yeah. barrier to entry, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, these are good points. And I know you said something similar in your combo with Jeremy. I took a mental note of it. And so this, this shallowness of reading, like if somebody's against CRT as a knee-jerk reaction, this is my biggest pet peeve. My biggest, especially in liminal spaces, to take this sort of like reactionary approach just to like like buy into uh the right-wing talking points you know like like james Lindsay, christopher rufo like they they publish something like oh it's from the Manha manhattan institute or new discourses like it's draped in all this like think tank aesthetics which i'm also trying to emulate but also parody but they're they're just lying through their teeth right and so uh, it, it's a big pet peeve of mine because like with critical race theory, like any person, any person who holds a kind of dogmatic view that it's wrong, that wokeness is wrong, reading the, a couple paragraphs in good faith will inoculate you at least to the point of, oh, I'm going to I'm going to pull back on my hatred of CRT. Maybe I don't know as much as I think I did, you know. But for whatever reason, that's not what happens, right? The the you know J Jim Rutt, David Fuller, they're just like, oh, CRT is racist, it's, you know, fucking disgusting. It's like, you know, how how do we get to this point when people are making such egregious missteps on basic things? Not to say CRT is simple, it's not. It's a bunch of thick books and journals and various colored speakers and you know activist movements and. Again, like like we noted the other day, Ryan, like with MMT and CRT, like things that kind of try to go to the root of law, very abstract, very much over most people's heads, very high level abstraction to kind of take all of that in, right? But um, yeah, my general heuristic and advice to people would be like, just move left, <laughs> you know, like go in the other direction, do a U-turn, uh, start reading. Um, because like I said, I really believe in good faith that if people read in good faith, like they only have to get a couple paragraphs in before they realize that they've probably been pretty wrong to judge, to judge these things, uh, the way other bad faith actors have interpolated them. And, you know, a, 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 a key feature of paradigm shifts, if we're to take Kuhn's definition, and you can problemize that, problematize that too, but a key feature is anomalies, right? If your paradigm can't explain anomalies, or if it just takes what you think are anomalies and puts them into a, a tiny box and labels that race Marxism or something stupid, like, you know, that's, that's, um, that's regressing into previous paradigms into into lower resolution forms of thinking um and so uh the more you know anybody on their critical thinking path whether you're doing it 
autodidactically, independently, or you're doing it through university, you need to let, you know, you need to try to find the best sources, let that complexity fill you in, fill you up until it like is bursting at the seams, trying to break you apart. Um, and you need to welcome that process, right? It's a kind of ego death. Uh, and it's a kind of like, um, in terms of trying to, trying to mentally hold and explain the anomalies, it will mount and mount until you have a, a, a better explanation for all of it. And then, and then it'll, it'll, um, become a new, a new paradigm, right? A new paradigm can explain the anomaly. So like, again, back to MMT and classical economics, like, you know, if classical, like the anomalies of classical economics are, are, are the extreme inequalities that, that are not supposed to normatively be part of classical economics, right? So the fact that they're there is, is, is the, the anomalies, the evidence, right? And so you need meta theories, you need CRT, you need MMT to, uh, to draw a much wider hermeneutic circle and to try to explain everything. And so, you know, when it comes to the role of the liminal web as intermediaries of this stuff, we need to do way better or they, they need to do way better to kind of just consult the best sources, which in some cases is just a Wikipedia article, right? Just kind of getting a, a, a an intersubjective overview um, and then, and then, you know, come, come back to, come back to the table, to the, to the, to the pulpit and, um, yeah, speak, speak that truth or give voice to that, um, that truth and that paradox to come back to that. Like there's the thing, you know, paradoxical thinking is its own kind of subset of critical thinking. And, and, and there's lots of social paradoxes to, to recognize as such that uh, they're not easy to solve and they're not easy to understand. But um, normatively, you know, we, we, it should be easy to determine the best values, you know, eliminate hunger, poverty, ignorance, uh, fear. <laughs> this reminds me of something I, I really want to get into with you, Brent, about thinking about hyperobjects and the epistemic frameworks that we need in order to see the hyperobjects, right? And this is where a lot of my interest in epistemic injustice as articulated by Miranda Fricker and the idea of hypocognition kind of come together, right? So hypocognition means you don't have the word or uh, linguistic concept to capture a certain phenomena. So you don't see it, right? You can't see something because you don't have a word to label it. And this is on a societal level called epistemic injustice writ large, right? Which Miranda Fricker specifically calls hermeneutic injustice, which is where there's some kind of oppressive phenomena happening. Her example is uh, like sexual harassment to women, much more prevalent historically. And we didn't, as a society, have a word or concept to label it. So we couldn't do anything about it as a culture. We couldn't address it. So in this case, uh, sexual harassment to women writ large was a kind of hyper-object phenomena. Uh, but we didn't have the concept to capture it or see what was happening, so we couldn't do anything about it. And so one of my interests in meta-ideological politics is 
really the ultimate it's really the ultimate antidote to hypocognition epistemic injustice because we're arming ourselves we're equipping ourselves with the frameworks with the by having a diverse range of analytic frameworks we're not going to miss things that we don't see right and this to me is the danger of bypassing certain ideological schools of thought is that we then miss things that can only be illuminated through that lens right they're kind of like augmented reality glasses or goggles uh that can tune the mind's eye to see these hyper objects that are affecting people's lives negatively so we can actually do something about it. So that's kind of my my pitch. And I'll, I've also found that framing to be helpful for people um, as a kind of way for them to start exploring a framework and experiment in your perception of complex systems and to illuminate these hyper objects. Um, and then we can start to converge and deliberate on the best ways to address them, right? But in order to in order to address them, what I'm saying is even more fundamentally or even more primordially than sense making, there's this there's this aspect of seeing. And if we can't have those initial abstractions to see, then we're not going to get anywhere. So that's kind of like part of what I like to emphasize is seeing. And how do we see things? We learn, we read, we study, we steal man, we diversify our analytic toolkit. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, not to get new agey, but like the, the third eye, if you will, like that's a mental projection, right? So we have two eyes for vis visually seen uh, and we take in uh, sense data through our senses, but then it's all in your head after that, you know, and it's all a jumble and, and you, we all think through many levels of abstraction th uh, to 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 uh, to educate ourselves and to uh, juxtapose different ideas, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to skip the hyper object part of the question. Maybe we can come back to that. But the epistemic justice thing, right? There's a lot to say there. My understanding is that there's two main forms. I, I think we could define a whole bunch of forms, but Fricker kind of boils it down to hermeneutical injustice and testimonial injustice. Right. And, and across the liminal web throughout throughout my history with these things um, and and you know given the fact that it was a, a cornerstone of my research from the beginning and now consilience project is like oh we're all about this um, um, it's it's ironic but also yeah what I'm saying is there's been this is a good frame because there's been provable repeated instances of epi of epistemic justice right so, you know, and one that comes to mind is like, you know, Jordan Peterson last fall, um, there was a, okay, there was first, there was a racist kind of incidents with a football player and a particular football club, right? There was, there was a, a, um, a Pakistani guy and, and his teammates even, and other members of the club would like call him derogatory names and it like, he, he asked them to stop. And then there was a kind of systemic suppression of it right and so so it became an issue of systemic racism not just one-off instances and so that happened and then jordan peterson's on a panel to discuss this on some british news show and he just goes into a rant an aggressive rant saying oh any talk about systemic racism is low resolution thinking i should be doing the voice for you ryan shouldn't i <laughs> Anybody who talks about systemic racism is wrong. It's low resolution thinking, right? And and I said, I think I, I, I told this to some people yesterday, like, you know, all the books on, on this subject, there's nothing low resolution about it, 
right? It's incredibly high, high resolution. And so, you know, Peterson's con committing an epistemic injustice there. And then, and then uh, you know, the media, other media tries to call him out. His fellow panelists try to call him out. And he just doubles down and gets angry. And, oh, that's not what I said. <laughs> um, but, like, you know, and then I try to to talk about it in, in, like, different Facebook groups. And then there's an epistemic injustice there. And then, you know, so it's just, it's a cascade. It, it, it's a it's a pattern of epistemic justice and then when it comes to like my my peterson critiques my game b critiques that was all ignored or suppressed by various people uh in both senses of hermeneutic and testimonial right if we're if we're refusing to hear people out that is actively committing that kind of epistemic crime and, and, you know, to go back to the, the simple point, it's like if, if people are actually good faith and they just look up the definitions before they go and, uh, you know, co comment on something um, like critical race theory, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be uh, stuck in these traps, right? And, and in the false epistemic humility that keeps us stuck in those, in those traps. So the whole the the whole culture war thing like it's 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 very real it's it's just another front of economic war too and and because of the knowledge inequality and the, and the kind of epistemic hegemony of pundits centrist liberal pundits that want to that want to keep their cushy jobs um you know we get we get really stuck and confused and and it um it feeds the debate Right. Rather than um, better nuanced and paradoxical approaches kind of as exit strategies. And just someone to add there, Brian, I would say that part of the issue and how I see it is that when people are critical or they're lacking what I call Dunning-Kruger awareness, <laughs> right? We don't know how much we don't even know about something. The critique, let's say like a, a, a typical reactionary style of critique um, of some kind of left idea is itself also coming from an ideology ideology or framework. It, it is a kind of a school of thought, whether it's a tenet of conservatism or something that people are enacting without the awareness that it is. And so the problem with that is people just think, oh, like my, my criticism of something is just common sense or it's obvious to everyone or, you know, I'm, I'm not ideologically uh, blinded or brainwashed and therefore I can see clearly when that critique is very ideologically loaded too. Right. So so my interest in increasing political and ideological literacy across the board is, I think, is important for for people's own frameworks, their own implicit frameworks to become illuminated to themselves to say, hey, oh, well, I didn't know that I was falling into a certain line of thinking without any awareness that I was while blaming everyone else. that mm. They were ideologically brainwashed while I'm seeing a reality objectively. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I think yeah, there's. It's, like, Go ahead. it's almost as if you have to do that twice, though. Because there's the first thing that you're in, and I think the reason that a lot of the liminal web is symp more sympathetic to the right than to the left is because a lot of them went to liberal arts schools where they were forced to read a lot of liberal arts works. They were forced to read Foucault and Judith Butler and all these people that they didn't really like because they were made to read them in college. And then they, they get out and they read something right wing and they think, oh, there's something here. This is it. Now I see and, and they forget, and they never go back and reread those texts. 
And so, and just like the punk movement where it was like, we're free from the establishment. We see everything now, but what did they really end up doing? Not, not a whole lot of anything because they were still trapped in the reaction. That's what a reaction is. And, and so yeah, you have to do it like a third time, you know, to triangulate and to then, and then shoot back towards the self almost. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And yeah, we don't we, like, I think that's absolutely true. At the same time, we don't want to like fetishize it as like a Hegelian dialectic or a spiral, but like it's true. It's true that you know that's why syllogisms are a thing, and and triangles are a very strong shape. But we need to keep applying it again and again and again and again and again, right? Recursively, and reflexively, right? And so for me, that's the meta perspective. Right? I use words like that to uh, to apply to these things. And it's the metanoia. Yeah, you quote an author in your recent piece who says, "I have what five hundred instances of metanoia." Right, right, right. I juxtapose there was a TED talk that's like you have one hundred and forty thousand in a lifetime versus like some you know some authors were saying like it's very rare, like once every ten years, right? I think both are true depending on how you frame it. But if you're having a bunch of small metanoias and you're still ending up in the place of being an old white boomer who's reactionary. Um, you're not doing it right. <laughs> and, and so, you know, to the point about punk and stuff like that, like I, th you know, and, and, and the aesthetics of, of revolutionary movements, I, I think it's, you know, it's great to like go through that, uh, you know, as a student and embrace it, find your way to be a part of it, but not, not, not to let it overwhelm you and and think that that's the end because like and one way i frame this is like well anti-capitalist is a bit too far to the left i think they have a point obviously right like it's there's no there's no reason to like censor them or dismiss them but to try to integrate them but post-capitalist is just a different discourse and a different word and I think it's more salient like it's more it's less game denial and more about game change in that, look, we're not going to just abolish capitalism overnight or even over 20 years. It's 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 here to stay, but we have to integrate it. And you can imagine, you know, layers or a, or a pie where you have some elements of social life determined through capitalism and markets and some through socialism and some through communism to some extent. Right. Like water, air, <laughs> a speech. You want to be in in some effect com communized, you know, communalized and and made and made free and abundant. Um, and and so by the same token, like like there's many communists I like, but I myself wouldn't be able to identify with it. It's it's sort of a it's sort of a yeah, it's sort of a conversation stopper, <laughs> right? Whereas, whereas socialism, like Albert Einstein was a socialist, you know, George Orwell was a socialist. There's a tradition here. There's a legacy here. And that is alive in, in parts of today's left. And so we have to always try to thread that needle, you know, and, 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 and stick to, stick to that, um, that, that coalition building and that, 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 uh, broad consensus. Like I spoke with, um, with a Marxist organizer a couple of years ago is actually like there's like a Marxist party of Canada kind of thing. And I was like, you know, I, I appreciate what you're doing. I want to I work together, but like you're not going to recruit me for your movement. I don't think it's ever going to win. I think a lot of the language is 
outdated and and puts people off whether it's the talking about the mode of production or whatever it is and i said what i want to do with you is kind of teach you a bit about this metamodernism discourse and and communities because we need more leftists right we need more kind of balance and he he wasn't all that interested you know he had kind of a limit to his ability to to consume new ideas in that sense right and so and that that's an example of how the left can be at odds with itself because you have these hardline people which i i want to support in principle but a Marxist party is never going to run Canada and I, I wouldn't want them to, you know, there's just too much kind of orthodoxy, uh, if you will, with, with, uh, with their approach, like the, the, the website's all red. It's all about class war. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, the, 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 the more meta perspective and, uh, integrative approach, whatever we want to call it, um, it, it's a yeah much bigger picture kind of uh, still you know still trying to push through an international socialist cosmopolitan socialist leftist discourse and political platform but but so insofar as you have more niche parties to the left of that i i, I don't see how that's helping yeah brent let's talk about this so this is this is really fun because I'm not going to say this is like a the meta ideological approach to this question of uh, meta theory education or how we work with diverse coalition and camps who all have their own vision of social change and their own ideology and philosophy, right? This is more like a Ryan Nakate approach, but taking this Marxist dude in Canada as an example, like obviously I agree with everything you said in terms of the viability and the aesthetics and practicality of that, their, you know, theory of social change, but, um, I have not had success, uh, and I gave up this venture several years ago, trying to actually pitch uh, meta-theoretic approaches mm-hmm. to supplement or buttress their ideology because all of them are very committed. They're you know a little rigid or locked into their worldview and, and their camp. And so just in terms of like, hey, like maybe consider this or this, it was just like rejection after rejection. So what I changed to was saying, okay, if this is what you believe, I'm going to study – your ideology and your philosophy. I'm going to talk to you on your own terms, right? I'm going to try to find what insights or what you know nuggets I can glean, or or you know what uh, is a value of what you're saying. And how can I talk to you on your own terms? And if they're interested, right, kind of like do like you know working with them uh, in terms of how they present and and their advocacy and stuff, so that they can still do some something of net positive to the community, even if they don't know that they're doing that. Right. So it's like, how can we how can we work together where your actions will produce positive externalities, even if unintentionally, uh, so that you don't have to change your ideology or belief system. Right. But rather changing how you present it or your how you advocate for it um, will still be of net benefit in somehow moving the needle towards mass metanoia, but in their own very idiosyncratic niche way. And so part of my work now, my professional work, right, in community development, living in Portland, obviously every organization I work with is definitely a leftist organization, activists, uh, racial justice advocacy, et cetera. They all have their own little lane, and they're not going to change mm-hmm. or expand their mind. Mm-hmm. So I said, fine, mm-hmm. you don't have to. I'm not mm-hmm. trying to tell you to become more meta-ideological or arm you with meta-theories. Let's just talk about what you want to do on your own terms and 
hopefully in doing so, you can maximize synergies with other stakeholders and parties, uh, minimize redundancies, generate positive externalities for everyone, and communicate your message more effectively uh, so we can all cross-pollinate each other and kind of mutually expand our worldview. So I'm, th I'm wondering what you think of that approach in contrast to the challenges of real meta-theory education, which people are not open to. Yeah, that's a, that's great stuff. And I, I, I don't have any critiques of it on the surface. I think, I think you provide a very useful role. Um, part of my answer is going to be in the form of, you know, that that's what I want to create with the abstract organization is uh, not what you're doing, but, but the kind of umbrella organization so to speak. Right. And so, because I see all these different causes, right. And, and, you know, I care about animal rights, but that's a good example to show what you're saying about different organizations that have a very, very narrow and precise goal, right? Like, like PETA for better or worse, you know, I know they're always embroiled in controversy, but you know, that's, that's their goal is just animal rights. And, and on some level, all of these groups know, like everything's entangled, you know, climate change, racial justice, uh, you know, um, abolishing the military industrial complex, etc. So, yeah, there's got to be um, not necessarily a middle ground, but, you know, you do what you're doing and I'm do I do what I'm doing. And hopefully both of our approaches work but at the end of the day, like different institutions and organizations, they can stick to their mandate, whatever, but... I don't, I don't see them achieving their goals any faster if we're not all also striving for paradigm shift. And what I mean by that is like institutions and even nonprofits, even nonprofits with political uh, advocacy and programs, some will endorse a candidate, right? When it comes to the Bernie Sanders movement, like it would have been great to see a convergence there. Uh, some will not, right? Like, um, let me just use effective altruism as a kind of punching bag for a moment to say like, you know, they've got their specific goals. I don't agree with their methods. There's a ton of critiques out there. And and they might make excuses for like um, not participating in politics. Like, oh, that's not our mandate. We just want to do this thing. And that's all about optics, that's got nothing to do with actual functionality, I, I think, you know, I, so I think, I think those organizations would do better in the world to build a quick internal consensus and say, you know what, as an institution, we should endorse this person. We should take the risk, put our, put our necks out there. And it, it's actually, it's, it's interesting if we talk about Black Lives Matter for a second, I, I've always been pro BLM despite its, its problems, but one one thing I learned, uh, might have to fact check this, but that I think they endorsed like Amy, uh, well, the New York Times endorsed Amy Klobuchar um, and and was it, it wasn't Elizabeth Warren, was it? It was uh, another woman. Anyways, the New York Times endorsed two women, right? And I think BLM endorsed other candidates besides Bernie. And it's like, what are you doing? <laughs> the fuck are you doing like i i can't get on board with that you know like that this is why you have a public relations image issue this is well there's different reasons people attack blm right but 
you know, it got its kind of Pyrrhic victory with the Biden administration and painting Black Lives Matter all over the streets and in big letters. Very performative, right? You know, that 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 war won't be over until until like millions of black people in prison are released and rehabilitated, right? Like most of it, most of them are in there are on like misdemeanors, really bunk drug charges and stuff, right? And so it's always about the substantive goals. And BLM is not ignorant of those things. You know, they, they're for systemic racial justice and, and overhaul. But because the left had no meta theory and no meta movement, I, I think I think that ushered in its disintegration and and the the factional factionalization. So you know to return to your your point and your question, right? Um, I I think I think there's absolutely a, a, a role, a, an imperative, necessary role for 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 your approach. Um, and and vice versa, like you know, to try to create an umbrella org and try to um, have it be kind of a permeable membrane, if you will, that, that uh, different organizations can opt in, opt in and out to the, to the fluid consensus as we build it. But um, yeah, and this is what I mean by paradigm shift, right? Like all the things, you know, Jordan Peterson is wrong about or anti-woke people are wrong about all. And, you know, where is the Where's the conclusion and the synthesis of, you know, these um, these uh, uh, kind of broken left movements from the 60s, right? The new left being, uh, you know, uh, fragmented and co-opted in different directions. It, it just keeps reemerging in different aesthetic movements like like uh, Occupy, Zeitgeist, Black Lives Matter, uh, Bernie, right? which which came very close to winning the primary both times and so um and even then when you win that's not the end of it right so i think we just need to be consistent and and own own our mistakes um, hold each other accountable and and to kind of answer a point i think nate made earlier both of you made about kind of the the future of these groups and whether we should be cynical or or optimistic i th i think you know the it's a very clear path at least directionally to just um, to converge to confront each other to to move left politically on that informed political spectrum at the same time we're trying to revise what um what political mapping means normatively and descriptively um, and yeah, like, like you're saying, Ryan, though, like it's always been a tough sell to kind of get different leftist groups into meta theory. And, and I, I'm just hoping that by us creating this type of content with a consciousness towards that, 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 that it can start to snowball soon. And that, you know, if we get key leftists on board, that they can then you know, deploy their knowledge and experience and position to give voice to these things that, that we've struggled to give voice to. Because um, again, like all these independent movements, animal rights, environmental rights, women's rights, minority rights, etc. It's all part of the same 
kind of struggle against systemic oppression, regardless of, you know, who the, ag the agent of that oppression is. Um, it's, it's about, it's about um, building consensus uh, towards that emancipation from exploitation and and the you know the U, the the russia invasion of ukraine is yet another clear example to talk about these things kind of the the asymmetry in terms of um, approaches and violence and and uh and because it's a western country and it's it's so uh, stark and dramatic in this narrative of russia versus them as a proxy and against the world that the world uh is finding alignment right like joe biden who leftists don't like he's trying to be determined in opposition to putin um and uh and all these different um institutions are sanctioning russia uh they're, they're denouncing putin uh specifically like i mentioned uh over text there like the strelka institute right design think tank based in moscow like they're they're like we're not having any part of this bullshit and like we're you know uh, boycotting all of it we're gonna we're gonna pull out our operation which i think to a large extent was based in russia in good faith in the first place right trying to do good in the world thinking about a paradigm shift and and they're like you know like no fuck this where everybody has to um you know this is a good opportunity for, for enemies so to speak to converge on a very simple moral imperative which is to oppose putin and that not just to the point of getting him to stop but all the way to putting him in prison and that might seem like a very fanciful unrealistic notion <laughs> but you know i don't care it's it's the right thing to do it's the right attractor to to hold um, because it's just so transparent you know regardless of like other factors like like the united states and nato because like if i'm to extend this leftist argument to uh you know stretch it sort of ad ad nauseum like you know a lot of a lot of leftists think the the bush administration are war criminals and should also be in prison right so myself included so these my these these types of things are are, are barely even possible to say within the current paradigm it's like oh you're crazy it's never gonna happen right but like like bolsonaro put lula in prison unjustly why can't we put bolsonaro in prison because it's the right thing to do why can't we put Trump in prison, who's, you know, on an ongoing basis under investigation from the Department of Justice and the, 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 the New York Attorney General, I think. So it's like, like, let's do it. Let's converge on these real ambitious ideals, galvanize world sentiment and, and mobilize political will, make it happen and anticipate the reaction. And, and um, you know, get ahead of it because because we're out of time, right? When it comes to climate change and 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 further political unraveling. Yeah, totally. Yeah, go ahead, Nate. Yeah, uh, it's just a minor. Well, it's not minor. Uh, hopefully, as a as a result of all this, um, it, it expands to uh, matters that are not purely in our geopolitical orbit. For example, the civil war in Ethiopia that's been going on for 
months and months or the coup in Myanmar last year, which the Biden administration had next to nothing to say about though it was obviously unconstitutional mm-hmm. human rights violation. So right. I'm doubtful. I'm cynical about um, this coming together thing that's happening now as a, as a broad human rights focused ethos. <laughs> yes. I think it's more yes. to do with uh, Putin is an easy guy to hate and mm-hmm. we need an enemy. <laughs> um so I, I, I fully agree. Obviously, maniacal and horrible. Um, mm-hmm. I, 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 I don't know about uh, our motivations in the West. Mm-hmm. I fully, I fully agree. There's a lot to say on this point. Like uh, some of the the commentary I've been collecting has been about the coverage, the the biased, kind of racist, even coverage to to like explicitly say like, oh, Ukraine, it's not some third world nation. It's uh, they're they're white Westerners like they're us, right? Explicitly saying this. Yeah. It is disgusting. It is disgusting. They don't mean Western. They mean what? Yeah. And so, and so I'm trying to, I'm trying to honor the cynical point you're making and say that that's true, but I'm also trying to hold the meta perspective uh, on this situation that says we, 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 you know, we need to hold that right, Ryan, because nobody else is holding it. We need to hold that meta perspective to say that even if I'm being a little bit too hopeful, this is still an opportunity for us to make those points that we're making. Like, yes, it's a simple kind of uh, position to take to denounce Putin and and take Ukraine's side. Uh, but then what? Right. And what about all these other conflicts? What about Yemen? What about Israel-Palestine? Right. And so this is the meta, meta perspective I'm always trying to hold and always trying to interject into different scenes, which then invariably just pisses people off in, 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 rather than them going, ah, oh, yes. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I want to comment a little bit on the holding of the meta perspective because, you know, I've a couple of things here, right? Like I've criticized, I mean, my critique of almost every camp, but specifically this conversation, right? We're talking about intra tribal polarization on the left, right? Everyone's kind of locked into their own little activist silo. And the analysis becomes very reductive uh, because everyone only has like one little slice of the pie. And the externalities from that very reductive frame are very polarizing, very divisive, even if different groups are working towards the same goal, presumably. And so I think part of uh, what we're trying to promote in meta-ideological politics, other than being like anti-polarization, right, is also anti-reductionism. And I think that's what you're also trying to plug with your work on meta-theory, is that you can hold a larger container space of ideas and perspectives so that it's not this reductive battle of like race reductionism and class reductionism and you know reducing it all to one identity category or you know really you know animal rights or the environment and it's like well there there is a larger picture here there's a there's a larger goal that diverse groups are working towards but because everyone's in their own little reductive lane the analysis isn't holistic enough the solutions become ineffective or or uh, counter synergize right or um there's just all this infighting and nothing there's no consensus or convergence right so so mm. expanding the frame to me is really important have a holistic analysis um one joke i make is you know a lot of people will blame the left for being too intersectional right and all this intersectionality is creating all this division my joke is that the left is not intersectional enough Mm-hmm. Right. It's like that's my jujitsu. Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. we're not taking enough variables into consideration. Yeah. Uh, and so the solution is not a- as wide ranging as it could be. That's right. Yeah. Because with intersectionality, it's uh, it's defined as just three axes. Right. And we can add to that. We can say, well, knowledge, you know, epistemics is another axis 
of of that inequality and that too is comorbid with these different groups and again the theory is not absolute right like just because uh, somebody is um uh, uh, you know a, a black woman it doesn't imply that they're less informed automatically right they might be more informed and that's why it's like it's a it's a counterintuitive model right it's paradoxical but um yeah we need more axes of of intersection there you know health is another one that you could add to it and so you know we're going beyond a sort of cartesian three-dimensional um uh, matrix um, just by adding axes right and then you get different types of geometries and then it's like then it gets more confusing and then it's like oh now we're talking about sacred geometry and like so it folds back into new age funnels um, when 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 hypo noia came up uh, it made me think of anthony judge he's somebody i cited in my uh, metanoia piece and i you know i kind of focus on the contrast between metanoia and paranoia just like metamodernism and hypermodernism. And of course, these are kind of simplifications without sort of making the reduction fallacy. But Anthony Judge has written for decades uh, with the, the, the highest order of complexity approaching these things, right? And so I think I know in my paper, he, he's, he's got a few models where he keeps adding things to it and he does a lot of geometry. And so hyponoia is another pole um, beyond metanoia and paranoia, right? And that speaks to the hidden. And so just by knowing these words, it's another way to think more in more complexity terms. I like the metaphor of, uh, and uh, Hansi uses it, I don't know if he uses it in this way, of the listening society, which as we said before, to open the third eye, you close your two eyes mm -hmm. and you listen, mm -hmm. you listen. Mm -hmm. So the other axis is not some... Um, hidden new agey axis of seeing it's the axis of listening close your eyes be reactive close your eyes and listen and that's where you can hear you hear depth you can't you can't they don't exactly see depth because everything is in the is in one plane in front of you you can you can through parallax and other means in the brain you can infer depth but you don't actually see it but you do hear depth you can hear whether something is resonating right here or is far away and not worthy of being listened to. I like to expand on that metaphor of the listening society in that way. Anyway. Yeah, no, it's resonant for me too. It, it, it relates directly to testimonial injustice, right? If we don't like, as a practice, listen to each other, uh, we're going to miss that. Um, the idea of a meditation practice and, and institutionalizing it the way Hansi does to say like, look, Here's the research proves that it works. We can, you know, you can't force people to do it, but, but, you know, studies show that like you introduce it into prisons, you get better outcomes, you introduce it into schools, you get better outcomes. And, and that is about, uh, in large part, listening to yourself and to your, to your mind's chatter. Um, and, and, um, you know, helping it quiet down, but also just listening acutely and then listening to the other as as we've touched on you know seeking out the research and the voices and the testimony of of different people all over the world right um, like especially you know palestinian journalists and academics who who are routinely 
systematically subjected to cancellation, let's say. So, uh, yeah, you know, it's built, it's built into Hanzi's work. I've always felt a, a strong affinity with that work, even though I have my own critiques, but, but my impression has been that the community that is formed around Hanzi is, and, and more so these other communities is that, um, they don't get it. And, and, you know, that makes me conscious of, of, uh, my own work too, and how that's read or misread and misunderstood. You know, I think, I think it's easy to see examples of people misrepresenting works. Uh, and by the same token, like there can be authors with problematic histories or biographies like Heidegger being a Nazi, right? It's like, people will be like, oh, I can, I can separate out that and like, just look at his work on its own terms. And it's like, really, can you, I don't think, I don't think you can. Right. And that's not to, that's not to dismiss it completely. Like I think Ryan, you said in your conversation with Jeremy, it made a mental note. You're like, you know, got to read Dugan, got to read this and that. And I'm like, okay, sure. Like, and, and I'll, I'll read some of it. I find it quite painful. Like for example, like with, with James Lindsay and guys like that, like Matt McManus who will review their books, right? right, right. Like, like sincerely, like he, he's a masochist to do that. Right. Like I, I'd be in the same camp. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I'm a masochist too, but I don't have the time or the patience to cover all of it. And with Dugan, it's like, um, you, you, you know, David Griscom made a great point about this kind of thing too. He's like, you, you have to read the economist. You have to read the Washington post. Yes. These are like, like centrist conservative liberal institutions. But, but the interesting thing is that, you know, more than half the time it's these elites being sincere and telling on themselves. Right. So it's very informative to read them and to speak their language. And then that's how you, that's how you confront it. Um, what I'm against, though, however, is the uncritical reading of these things and, and the kind of like sensationalizing and like, oh, the fourth political theory, like my takeaway is that it's not good theory. And then, you know, you have the Stoa has Dugan on and Technosocial even had Dugan on and, you know, they're not really there to push back like or to challenge. They're not even prepared to do so. And so it becomes a self-defeating exercise. Like that's where listening goes wrong. Like, oh, I'm going to invite this person and just, I'm just going to listen to them. It's like, well, did you listen to the part where Dugan's been advocating for invading Ukraine for, for years on end? Because there's a direct correlation here. <laughs> Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. So, so one thing I want to say about this, it's funny you bring that up because we're talking to Layman Pascal tomorrow about critiquing and reappropriating controversial thinkers or philosophers that have been appropriated or ideologically kind of subsumed in very problematic ways that lead to something like neo-fascism or whatever. Um, but I, I do think that there is space for kind of creatively creative reinterpretations or in, you know, harvesting insights. And in in the example I always give is like Nietzsche and Heidegger are two thinkers that all, you know, they're part of the alt-right canon. Nazis in the 30s, you know, kind of uh, uh, appropriated their their insights and kind of took things that they said. 
and so did postmodernists, right? Yeah, just just on that point though, like you know, you know, with Nietzsche, like my understanding is that most of that is just based on the will to power, and the will to power was published posthumously by his crazy sister, and so it was edited to reflect more of a fascist tone, right? And so, whereas Heidegger was a card carrying Nazi, right? Yes, to to the bitter end, sort of. So. So I never really like look, read Nietzsche as um as a real far right figurehead, but but definitely through the will to power, um it was, that was very influential and taken up by Nazis, right? So I just right, I just like right. to make that ca- that caveat about Nietzsche, but I I could be I could be a little bit missing the mark too, but um yeah he's he's inspired a lot of leftism as well, right? But. I, so it's funny though, because I, I, I've heard that too. I just finished a book by an author who's extremely critical of Nietzsche and Heidegger, and he just made the argument that in all of Nietzsche's writings, you can you can find some neo-Nazi material. Okay. I don't know if I I can't really comment on that because mm-hmm. I haven't read Nietzsche extensively myself, but but people are saying that he's more problematic than just what he what came out in Will to Power. Sure. I think he's, I don't know if a, a satirist is the right way to describe him. Like he's not Mark Twain, but you know, there's, there's definitely a lot of like, I don't, I don't know if you call it trolling either, but like taking, yeah, taking, kinda. taking the piss, right? Like Nietzsche was right. a, a subversive thinker for his time. So, yeah. No, I think he was a, uh, Nietzsche was a poet and, mm-hmm. and a lot of mm-hmm. times in a lot of his works, he's explicitly setting up characters that are talking to each other to represent different points of view in the same way that Plato did. Um, you know, you, you no one knows what Plato thought really, because he was putting all these characters against each other. So I think Nietzsche's goal a lot of the time was just to paint a thought as opposed to advocating for it, whereas Heidegger, as you say, was a Nazi. And it's actually quite clear looking at his philosophy how a pathologized version of the, the philosophy is fascism or yeah. is Duganism. And, and, and Heidegger's biggest influence to Dugan. Mm. Um, and it's just, it's just taking his mm. uh, the ready-at-hand mode and taking it stupidly anti-intellectually and turning it into fascism yeah and 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 that's not to say there's not a leftist read of heidegger too but like but heidegger rene gerard right like you said julius avola the other day ryan like those names keep coming up again and again and again on the right right and like you know whether it's like intellectual deep web waxing about rene gerard or peter Thiel who like did his dissertation on Rene Gerard, like clearly there's a, there's a right wing kind of affiliation and, and consistency here, which I, which I'm against. I say is not good. If you're, if you're so enthralled and absorbed with these thinkers, but you don't see how it's part of your legitimation of your conservative worldview, you know, we're, we're, we're just stuck in the same old trap. Right. Another example that comes to my mind in terms of um, thinkers being reappropriated to different sides is uh, um, Antonio Gramsci, mm-hmm. you know, uh, cultural hegemony. And, you know, he was, you know, a Marxist analysis, obviously left at his time. And now I, I read an article recently that the right has really appropriated this idea of cultural hegemony and is using it to critique 
what they see as like woke cultural hegemony. Mm -hmm. And so it's just to me, this is an interesting exercise, though, in like, how do we develop a kind of critical literacy or meta ideological literacy where we have an awareness of how different ideological camps are appropriating material and slanting them, right, or or how we're kind of biased and reading in we're we're doing very, um, uh, what's the word like confirmation biased reading of stuff texts, right? Yeah, I don't have an answer in terms of past authors like like Gramsci. I I think I guess a deep reading would speak for itself, right? Like like if what they self-identify as, but I think about this question a lot as a writer and it kind of touched on it with what I was saying about Hanzi and, and my own work. I don't want to see it appropriated by right-wing uh thought or movements. And um, and so I try to be clear and it's difficult when you're, you know, you write different articles, each with each has its own kind of theme and 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 limited scope. There's not space to kind of declare your affiliations at the top of each article so that people aren't confused. So it's kind of a paradoxical thing when it comes to writing, too. And so I actually I want to write as little as possible. And I want to be as succinct as possible. And there's different levels of density you you do that at. But I also, you know, it, it's with language, it's it's quite easy to be un- misunderstood, right? So if you say you're left, that's going to mean different things to different leftists. It's going to be allergic on the surface to, to right wingers. So... Um, uh, so, you know, it's a paradox. And this is why, like you you guys say at the beginning, I'm kind of unabashed, unapologetic. But I find I try to find the best anchoring points like, oh, the Bernie platform, you know, that wasn't possible to say before 2015. And then it became possible to like point to a tangible movement that was actually the continuation and the synthesis of many past movements. And so we need to continue to do that, obviously, to crystallize that policy program, that sort of policy program, Green New Deal sort of th- stuff, and and to depolarize language. And, um, uh, you know, I said to Gavin Palmer yesterday, because, because, you know, he says he is looking for kind of you know techniques and hacks and ways to to scale he's an engineer so he said he wants to scale kind of critical thinking post-ideological thinking and and so my answer to him was to warn against the kind of game b approach which is like very individualist all about sovereignty building and say like oh here's a toolbox of things you can use it's like no fuck that i said gavin you want to you want to scale critical thinking support education infrastructure that's it vote for that vote for uh, debt forgiveness student debt vote for education expansion because like universities are under attack from the right right and so um you know there's no way to scale kind of mind hacks and psychotechnologies that liminal web folks are developing on the fly in, in a kind of pluralist way that, that doesn't really doesn't really prove itself or pan out in the short term. It's always been that we should anticipate the erosion of education infrastructure through neoliberalism and do the opposite. Advocate for it. Advocate for the expansion of university culture. 
to to give everybody a place um, and access to education, right? That's that's the highest point of intervention and, and leverage. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it reminds me too that I'm I work with uh, different organizations that are affiliated with universities, and um, one's called Civic Synergy, and they do depolarization work and. I facilitate uh, college students of diverse backgrounds to come together and formulate transpartisan uh, policy proposals that they propose to Congress. And it's, it's, it's so exciting to be in an environment where like all these college students from all over the US are so excited about getting beyond polarization, about civic engagement, about all these things. And what they complain of is like, there isn't enough of that at, their, at the college that they're going to. And so for them to kind of all converge together through this online, it's through uh, MIT and Boston College. Um, they're like really excited. And it's like, and I just started thinking like, man, like we have, I agree with everything you said. And I think that also, I think colleges, you know, this gets back to the meta theory education stuff, right? Like I, I would, if, if there was a kind of a mass uh, metanoia that took place at universities where they could start teaching all the stuff we're talking about, that would mm. be the biggest transformative mm. leverage point. Mm. I've never, you know, as I was saying, I'm a high school dropout, I'm from college, <laughs> so I can't, I can't speak to, uh, you know, campus dynamics or what's I could, going on. I can speak there. a little bit to that point. I mean, things are obviously changing uh, year over year and, and decade over decade. Uh, when I was in university a decade ago, they were just starting to institute more common core type of stuff. They had something called arts one and science one. And that was like, you could get a more generalized degree. Right. And my, my field international relations is already a hybrid kind of program. And so there's this direction that the universities know that to deal with today's complexity, they need more generalized students. Um, so there are those directions happening, but at, at, you know, at the same time, like, all universities need massive reform. And, you know, part of what we're doing with metamodernism in academia or para-academia is trying to formalize that turn, right? And so you have the Vermeulen and Vandenacker and Gibbons book, which is um, sort of academic driven. You have Hanzi and other authors, which are kind of para-academic. And then you have um, Jason Storm, um, who his theory is not perfect either. But it's got some great, it's got some great starting points, some great like leftist sort of confessions, and it's published by the University of Chicago, right? So the more legitimacy these things have, the more they'll be able to get read in universities and integrated. Um, but um, yeah, you can't just expand education infrastructure as it is because it's very neoliberal. Um, there's a lot of like, sure, the content is like left wing, but the administrative structure is right wing kind of capitalist. Right. And I remember this kind of thing going back to high school. One day our high school did not have pop machines. The next day they did. And, and I'm like, like used to seeing commercials on television. Right. But to see a Coke machine and even in high school, I knew Coke was an evil corporation, right? Just, you know, you get a kind of cultural literacy from like watching the Simpsons or whatever, but it's like, that was kind of a shock to me to, to have this branding introduced into a public education space, right? In a, in a subtle accepted way, like, oh, it's just soft drinks and like people are thirsty, <laughs> no big deal, right? 
but um, but I was more cynical about it. And and that's that's I just it's an anecdote, but that's the pattern that you see wash over the university structure and make 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 tuition more expensive for students and make the um, prospects for jobs narrower and narrower. Right. So we need a paradigm shift in every sector, right? military, business, religion, academia, media, right? however many others you can list law. Um, and, and that's what these different, uh, discourses do. And this is why I'm so interested as, as you guys are with kind of, uh, the marriage of CRT and MMT, uh, as are, as are the, uh, MMT guys, I think. I think, I think that's a, that's a really good distinction, right? Cause I would be far less enthusiastic about expanding education infrastructure in its current form right? mm -hmm. it's expansion mm -hmm. combined with transformation mm -hmm. i think as you're saying both structurally and administratively and i think the content needs to be souped up but not only in colleges but in high schools too and schools just you know like public schools um and it's there i think there's so much you can do uh, especially with the um gen z generation right i think there's a kind of hunger for what we're pointing to here um, as much as our approaches or work may differ, right? But there, but there is that kind of a hunger um, organically emerging for a more meta-theoretical angle. And so I think I, I just love to see that instituted uh, so that can be satiated and obviously have a very transformative impact on society. One thing I wanted to comment on too, Brent, was uh, this notion of building, mm -hmm. right? Which is probably one of my favorite ideas ever uh just mm -hmm. conceptually and mm -hmm. there are different definitions of building right like uh what lene anderson has her own kind of idea of what that is and the different building theorists but one thing that excites me about building is like it's to me at least my interpretation of it a lot of it is kind of like the best of like classical conservative thinking right without necessarily all of the the reactionary edges but it's like it's it's conceiving of ourselves you know um as continually developing evolving there's a process of enculturation there's education it's character development it's community development it's um caring about you know civil society and being engaged and and i just love that kind of holistic concept of self and societal growth and evolution and this is this is kind of where i i, I on our first episode of MIP, Nate and I were critiquing Hansi's work. And I think what they're doing is it is a very specific, uh, with the listening society and emphasizing developmental theory, it is a very specific vision of building. Um, but I think every culture, and I, I, yeah, I'd, I'd go to say every culture and every ideological camp has its own implicit idea of building in a way, right? Even if it's like a kind of like a distorted or fucked up uh, <laughs> notion of that it's still implicit in that right so like another part of the work that i do kind of steel manning different ideological schools and then talking to them and working with them on their own terms is to see like well where in their philosophy is there an implicit building that they may not be conscious about and then kind of feeding that and and using that as a vehicle for self-growth so just just a quick example i was talking to um a black woman who lives in atlanta who's a mediator does a lot of great work depolarizing like conversations on racial justice. And uh, at a mediation gathering, she had said, you know, like if someone comes to one of my meetings and says that, uh, says, I don't see race, I'm colorblind. I know they have, I know they have more growth to do as a person. And I, and that really stuck with me because I was like, okay, that like part of the growth as she's conceiving of it, right. Through her frame 
is gaining a larger awareness of uh, historical societal power dynamics and how that instantiates themselves in different identity groups and getting a robust understanding of, of social justice and so forth um, that occurs through dialogue and through mediation, right? And so it's like, okay, how can we, how can we build that, right? Because like she, she explicitly connected the, those notions to personal development and self-growth. So it's all there. It just needs to be kind of nurtured on their own terms. And my concern with Hanzi and like all of the, and you, you can you can push back if you want, like the MHC model of development is such a specific lens. My concern is that it can kind of like block our ability to see diverse cultures' own notions of building on their own terms so that we can nurture those seeds, right? It's kind of like, I don't want people to have an overly rigid model of what development looks like and then try to like, impose that on people, right? Like what is building already in your own conception? How can we feed that towards more growth and evolution and, and towards the metanoia, right? What do, what do you think of that? Yeah, I agree with the critiques against the MHC. Um, and, and I'm, and I'm I, you know, I think you nailed it with your definition of building and, and, wh and why that's good and whatnot. Um, not to sound like kind of ex exceptionalist or whatever but i don't know if every country or culture does have their own version of bildung like implicitly right i think it's the fact that this is an explicit term that uh, as a word it's a it's a big abstraction which contains all these things right and so thomas bjorkman is a is a fierce advocate for it because it literally like comes from his country too you know it's a german word but it's like practiced in, in scandinavia and then, you know, Jonathan Rousen wrote a 10,000 word piece on it. So like it's all, it takes a complex introduction to really get it. And, and so like, you know, and I, I don't even have to, I don't have to point to like less developed countries, which of course have been under the thumb of imperialism and colonialism and stuff, but the United States itself, they don't have Bildung. They don't have anything like it. Right. But like my impression is the opposite that they, they dumb down their population actively there's mild fetishization of civic engagement, right? But that gets very quickly enfolded back into patriotism. So, right, if you're if you're a right winger with this, you're just running with that and carrying a waving a flag. Might be an American flag, might be a Confederate flag, but if you're a left winger doing it, you are trying to advocate for something like bildung, like education, like like uh, free thought, fair and open elections, uh, you know, election justice, racial justice, economic justice, and and um, anti-war, right? And but but what I'm saying is, there's no formal concept in the U.S. There's no formal institutions for it. There's there's a, a massive military apparatus that takes more than fifty percent of the discretional budget. And uh, so what does that leave for like Peace Corps and, uh, you know, um, civil society and stuff like that? It's just it's hollow. It's hollowed out. So um, that's not to say every culture doesn't have some radical tradition. I think it does. But but Bildung is a way to, to formalize it to make it universal. Right. So it's not just exporting the Scandinavian model. But um, but just in, in abstract terms, you know, valuing civic education, um, uh, you know, uh, political participation, um, 
well, well-rounded human being, you know, personal development. Um, so yeah, we, that's something we need to lean into, I think, and, and support as part of metamodernism. Yeah. And one thing I, I will say that's unfortunate with the U.S. Is, is if you study U.S. history, there are seeds of building, in my opinion, cropping mm. up here and there. So mm. one example is Benjamin Franklin's Junta uh, or Junto uh, clubs and gatherings that are based on civic engagement and personal development, right, and, and commuting economic development. And then there's kind of the pragmatist lineage with John Dewey and, um, you know, that really valorized civic engagement as part of a healthy democracy. But it, it all mm. it all gets that tradition is not prominent right no, it all gets and lost when you were offline for a bit there uh, i i mentioned the transcendentalists and the quakers uh, right, and that right. was more in the spiritual part of the conversation but they were very politically active too right and so that for me is part of this um american bildung and socialist tradition that that you're speaking to right right so it's like where where are the seeds that could be watered or resuscitated Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's already kind of latent in the American psyche or collective imagination. Um, and then finding that to really, to really tease that out so we can build on something that's in the background and just needs to be uncovered. So anyway. Yeah. I, in... think, it, I think it went past the seed and seedling state. I mean, we're, we're listing all these things, but we put them mm -hmm. all together. It starts to look like a tradition of build on, mm -hmm. especially with the Quakers, uh, from my home state of Pennsylvania, by the way, the Keystone State, <laughs> that did hold it all together. You know, I think it mm -hmm. it, it it was it was quite well flourishing for a lot of our history, and only recently I think it's it's gotten um, suppressed. So I, you know, I think it's, it's yeah. right there below the surface. And you know, it, it has to do with institutional structures more mm -hmm. so than the psyche of Americans. The the EU has its own civil service. Right. You can, you can, you can, uh, I applied for it once. I didn't get in. Um, but you, you know, you can be a civil servant, uh, for the EU itself. Right. And it's sort of, sort of, you know, it's holistic cosmopolitan on, on that, that continental scale. And, you know, so where, where's the civil service for the U S where do I sign up? It, it's all about military recruiting. Oh, you can get free, you know, free college and, and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, but it's like this, you know, this is, this is state violence. It, and it's, 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 it's obsolescent. It's decadent. It's, uh, it's wasteful. It's antithetical to peace building. Right. So let's take that same amount of resources and, and, uh, a transition to a peace industrial complex, right? So instead of people going off to military college, uh, you know, you can, you know, people can be, people can go to whatever college, uh, if they join the army, but, but it's about, um, transitioning away from that status quo of, oh, we need to, we need to, um, be, be violent and be tough and be strategic and be, um, you know, ge geostrategic to, to kind of just uh, bring, bring that concept home. Like that's, it's such a waste of resources. Like the whole bloated intelligence apparatus, like Edward Snowden showed that not only was all this illegal data collection happening, but that it was like pretty useless, you know, pretty, pretty ineffectual, pretty wasteful, you know, uh, to do so. And, and so many people are employed 
to those ends, and so few of them realize it and defect as Edward Snowden did, right? So, yeah, you know, part of you know, trying to promote the idea of Bildung is is uh, then trying to consolidate and crystallize um, American forms and and institutionalize them. Um, you know, it's so it it should be a part of the next left political platform, right? Where the Bernie movements failed because they only gave kind of lip service to Sc Scandinavian countries and didn't really have a meta theory. Hopefully we can do better next time. Hopefully. And I always feel like we're in a time crunch, right? The, the faster the liminal web gets its shit sorted out, the, the, the faster we'll stop generating problems and stop fighting and be able to converge and put forward a confident sort of consensus that um, allows people allows people at, at various levels of uh, being informed or, or developed, so to speak, to, to sign on, to get on board, right? What we don't want to do is keep attracting um, reactionaries that are like, oh, th I, this is a right-wing thing. And, uh, oh, um, Trump is metamodern. Like, no, <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and just to, just to kind of, uh, you know, highlight what you were saying there, Brent, I think the unfortunate thing about the military in the United States is everyone knows that the military serves other functions than just national defense. Yes. Right? That for yes. people who are, uh, you grew up in a you know poor, economically impoverished area, you don't have meaning in life, and everything. It ha there are latent functions of the military that so mm -hmm. it serves those purposes. And and civil civil end, civil right? engineering is a part of that military function and right and that's a good thing but that's what i'm saying is it should be demilitarized right exactly yeah. those are important functions mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that we need to instantiate in another way that doesn't lead to like you know war mm -hmm. and invasion and, so, and, this, and so this was bernie's pl platform i think he he gave lots of voice to it but maybe didn't unpack it enough you know and right. that's that he said you know my foreign policy is going to be uh, dismantling the military industrial complex and, and uh, redirecting military resources to fight climate change. I think there's a beautiful story to unpack there, but he got across that talking point a number of times. And, and, and that's, that's what it is, right? That's what we need to do with this military. And so it's refreshing to, to listen to deconstructing uh, conservatives or deconstructing military people that um, that have that inside perspective and know also agree and know that's what we have to do and are on the learning curve of of jo of, jo of joining that conversation. And an, an affirmative picture of what that looks like is is really important too. Right? Like I did uh, AmeriCorps. I don't know if you've heard of AmeriCorps. It's a Peace Corps for America. Okay. Right. So it's exactly what Nate did in the Peace Corps, except instead of doing it in a foreign country, I did it right here in in Hawaii where I was, where I grew up. Okay, cool. And that was, that was a great experience for me. You know, like I got skills. I felt like I was doing something important. And that was a time where I was personally suffering with a lot of, uh, you know, insecurities and anxiety and depression. And, and like, it was really meaningful to like take part in a larger civic project to help the community where I can learn skills and develop myself. So like, the, and the pay is total shit, right? It's like mm -hmm. low mm -hmm. minimum wage. It's a stipend, so it doesn't mm -hmm. even qualify as like minimum wage. You, you don't really get any like decent. Uh, you get like a five thousand dollar education award to pay off your student loan debt at the end of it all, right? And so, like, just envisioning like how these programs can be made much more robust, and we can have a kind of civic draft to do good stuff in the community. 
um, that serves similar functions in the military. You learn important life skills, you learn discipline and service and all that good stuff, right? Uh, except it doesn't end with you having PTSD and going blowing up another country or whatever. Yeah, so, exactly, yeah. exactly. And it comes back to listening. If you you listen to frontline war reporting and, and, and victims talking right now and soldiers defecting, so soldiers having their own breakdowns and metanoia moments, it's happening all the time. We just don't hear about it enough. Well, I think that was a very fast uh, two hours, especially since I was AWOL for the first half an hour or so. <laughs> but um, Brent, thank you so much for coming on. It's always, always fun to, to riff with you and, and talk to you about these things. Uh, Nate, did you have anything you were going to say before we... I guess no, we no, I, just, I have a meeting in a few minutes with my deep state uh, you know, apparatus that I work for here. So... Uh, <laughs> So I yeah I do have to go but yeah thanks Brent for coming on and thanks for all you do and um, yeah yeah do you, have, do you have anything well like likewise I mean I appreciate what you guys are doing and like whenever I talk with any of you it's it's really it really helps me uh, and yeah and this conversation has been stimulating along a lot of different lines that uh, I think need to be continued so. Yeah, really appreciate it. And yeah, we did well with a, a clean two hours. Um, so yeah, I'll see I'll see you guys later. Thanks for connecting. I hope audiences like this, whoever listens and that they, of course, like subscribe to your channel and, and mine and engage and interact because we want we want to make this accessible, even though it's pretty high level kind of stuff. Um, you know, we, we want to keep it grounded and we want to grow in numbers. That's not, not out of any like personal ambition or career goals at all. It's just about making the world a better place and making our jobs easier. <laughs> what I would urge listeners to do is read. And mm -hmm. <laughs> we kept saying this, mm -hmm. actually read the work and stop mm -hmm. quoting people that you haven't read. <laughs> Yeah, and read, read Brent Cooper's stuff on his, <laughs> on his Medium page. It's really great. <laughs> yeah, thanks. And and I'll say, like, as a writer and a reader, uh, both of those are hard. Reading, I struggle yeah. with reading. Reading's fucking hard. And that's the point, though. It's like, it, like if you want to get in really good shape, you need to exercise, right? It's hard. And, and you're better to do the best exercises, the most efficient forms of exercises, especially if it's fun, like a sport, right? And so it's, it's the same with mind practices, with, with, uh, with discipline, with, with, um, with kind of stretch with warmups and stretching and, and intensity training, you gotta, you know, get your hands on the good stuff. Uh, and, you know, read, see, Wright mills, you know, classic entry level radical sociologist kind of gets people on board with that kind of thinking about elites and masses, sociological imagination. Uh, and yeah, read read us, engage with us. <laughs>